This is the fourth Sunday of Easter. Every fourth Sunday of Easter, the name for this Sunday is called Good Shepherd Sunday. And the reason is that the gospel is normally read from John, and it is one of the gospel readings in John that uh, alludes to Jesus as the Good Shepherd. The image of Jesus as a shepherd, as the Good Shepherd, uh, they are the earliest representations of the Savior in Christian art. The idea of Jesus as shepherd is very compelling. Those of you who've been in Europe and have gone to Italy to places like Ravenna or other parts uh, have seen uh, early portrayals of Jesus as the good shepherd. It is famous. The earliest depiction we have of Jesus on the cross is about the 6th century, and it's on a panel in a door at Santa Sabina Church in Rome. When I was a student in seminary, I went, uh, uh, 20 of us, on a scholarship uh, and lived in Rome for about six weeks. And I lived in a pensione that was just across the street from Santa Sabina Church. The address I still remember, Clivo di Pulici numero due. (laughs) It was near the circus, you know, where Ben-Hur had his chariot race. And uh, all of that went on. And right next to the Pansione was San Anselmo, which is the great Benedictine college, the great Benedictine center for the worldwide Benedictine order. I probably shouldn't tell this story, but in the Pansione, it was run by Camaldolese nuns who are contemplative and some recluses. And so they didn't run the Pansione. They had... Uh, lay people who were in there running, you know, the meals and doing all of that sort of thing. Um, But if you wanted to have a key to get into the place, they closed it up at 9 o'clock at night. So if you were out and about in Rome and you were out there after 9 o'clock, you needed a key to get in. So if you gave them X number of thousand lira, they gave you a key to get in. And it was our responsibility to get the key. So every day there was a sister who was on duty... Uh, behind one of these sort of speakeasy-like panels that you'd slide like this. And uh, I went to get my key, and I knocked on this panel, and the door opened, and here was an absolutely drop-dead gorgeous sister who was about my age, about 25 then, (laughs) Uh, a novice. She had the novice habit on. So I started in my then Brooklyn, excuse you know. So, and she looked at me and said, I grew up in Brooklyn. What do you want? <laughs> I said, well, a, a key. That was the end of that. The good shepherd is a, is a compelling image for Christian people. The idea of the shepherd. Ernest Cockrell, who was here back from the Holy Land, said to me after the nine o'clock uh, sermon discussion, he said he was reminded of these gospels because um, when he was in Jericho, just before he came back, he was looking out into a field and there was a shepherd. 
and uh, the shepherd was sort of standing around looking a little bored. But uh, he, he said, I, we have to remember, you know, in this country uh, and in other, we drive the sheep. We drive them. The shepherd drives the sheep. In the Near East, the shepherd leads the sheep. And the shepherd has two whistles. He has the whistle that he plays like Pan, you know, to entertain himself and everybody. And then he has the whistle that he uses that the sheep recognize. And then they follow him when he leads them. More on that maybe in a minute. But I want to begin the sermon by preaching on the, 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 the uh, reading in the book of Acts. Because here's what's happening now in the biblical readings during the great 50 days of Easter. We had, for the first three weeks, uh, a series of resurrection appearances. And we're beginning now to come to terms with the Easter message of new life transformation, the risen Savior. And now the early church, the New Testament church, is coming to grips with its meaning. And how then must we live in light of the resurrection faith? And how can we make present the idea that new life and transformation is possible both for the community of faith and in our individual lives? How do we understand how that might work? And remember the Bible, the New Testament, was written probably uh, two generations after Jesus died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and ascended into heaven. So uh, the same person who wrote Luke's gospel also wrote the book of Acts. It's a two-volume set. And we're talking now about 85 A.D. Jesus died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and ascended into heaven in 33 A.D. So that's 50 years. And you have a community of Christians who are saying, how then must we live? How does this, this idea still have resonance in our hearts and in the community of faith? And how are we going to describe for the whole of the Christian community, not merely in our locality, the way in which Christian people understood themselves and what did they do? So today we have some earmarks about the early Christian church. It is a community that is absorbed in religious teaching. In the apostles' teaching and fellowship, it says in this reading, what we're talking about is people becoming conversant with the tradition with a capital T. In the Episcopal Church, if you were to say, what is it that you consider the location of what is authoritative for you in your faith and belief, you would say we have three sources. The Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. And by virtue of that, we come to some understanding about how God is working in our lives, what God's purpose is for each of us, how do we become a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love. So it's necessary to develop some understanding of the tradition, how people have thought about this. You know, a lot of people find history boring, I know that. And uh, Mother McNeil was at a wonderful conference yesterday uh, that was uh, given down in Salinas by Diana Butler Bass, who is a great writer on the contemporary Christian scene. And she said something that was very interesting. She said, you know, when people tell you that they're spiritual and not religious, they're, those are not opposed views. They're the same thing. They're the same thing. 
So what the commercial message is in this biblical text is not uh, throwing cold water on people who consider themselves spiritual, but it is a commercial message for saying you need to be a student of the deep things of Christian faith and belief as you become proficient. If you wish to reside within this tradition, all of us will seek to do that about other kinds of traditions that are important to us, and we, need, we learn about what they're about and how do you do it and what is the best practice. That's what the Christian faith in life is about and that's what's being described today in this earmark of the Christian community in the book of Acts. They have regular fellowship in social and religious settings. In the ancient Near East, when that was talked about, it meant their community life together, but it also meant their, their giving. It meant their stewardship and in 2 Corinthians, Paul is going to use the same word that's in the book of Acts in this earmark to describe that in that sense, the generous spirit in terms of giving. They took active care for one another. This is the third earmark. And that is, this is the section that prompted me to want to preach on this because this is where it says, they held all their goods in common. Oh, no, is this socialism? There's a lot of people these days that are still worried about creeping socialism, I guess, in this culture. They're just worried about it and think it's a terrible thing. I thought we settled that question about how socialism in its purest form was not going to work because the Soviet Union went pew. After about 70 years, it went bust. I remember seeing an interview with, uh, with uh, Mikhail Gorbachev on 60 Minutes in about 1989 when the thing... And he describes an incident where he and Edward Shevardnadze walk out of the Kremlin because the whole place was bugged, got onto a bridge and looked at each other, this is about 1986 or 87, and they said, what are we going to do? This thing is on its back, it's over. It is over. How are we going to get through this? So that's not what we're talking about. What were they talking about? Well, you know, they were talking about something that the Greek philosophers talked a lot about, Hellenistic culture, Greek culture. Luke is a Gentile Christian, He's steeped in Hellenistic culture. His Greek, by the way, was the best in the New Testament. He was the Shakespeare of the New Testament. And he's describing a saying that uh, you can find both in Plato and Aristotle. For friends, all things are common. Somehow the generosity of spirit and people sharing, each according to their need, was something that was compelling for these early Christians. Did every Christian community in early Christianity throughout the ancient Near East practice this kind of behavior in their community life? No, they did not. In many places they understood sharing all things in common or distributing to each according to their need to be the charitable impulse that we use with regard to everyone. You know, it's the Christian church who started the whole idea of having hospitals and other kinds of social, act, social action stuff that was trying to do the best for the most. 
It didn't just bubble up in, in the enterprising nature of human beings. It was something that was animated by a particular Christian anthropology that believed that all human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. And by virtue of that, we ought to be caring for one another in the most healthy and the best possible way. So that's what this part of Acts means. Continuing steadfastly in prayer, that's a line about Sabbath keeping, about coming to church and its importance on a regular basis, participating in worship. And by virtue of that, it says that this community uh, were, was a community that began to feel a certain spirit and a spirit of oneness and unity. And they began to say, this is what it must mean to say, we possess the Spirit of God. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. So in the book of Acts, Luke is at pains to defend Christianity against the charge of political subversion, to demonstrate the essential unity of the church in its worldwide mission, to vindicate the part played by Paul, to give a picture of what Christianity is and how the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Rome. Did this expression that is in the book of Acts ever exist in history in its absolute form? Probably not. This is a description of the church on its best behavior. Now here's something we do know from the historical record. And that is that when the church is attempted to use these earmarks to focus their community life and people's personal spiritual impulses, we have always been the most successful and we have always been the most faithful. There's a lot of panic in uh, the, the mainline denominations in this country, not without justification, about what in the world should we be doing and Jay whiz and what's going to be the future of the church and so forth. You know, we have to remember in the middle of this without uh, using this cliche as an excuse, we are not called to be successful. We're called to be faithful. And so it's important for us to understand how to live these earmarks in such a way as to be faithful. And the rest will follow. You know what it means to live with some species of integrity when you have in your life, and you know that it does in fact bear fruit, not just in terms of your own internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental states, but in the health that you bring to your relational life in all of its aspects. So that's what fidelity means. Now we go to the gospel for the today about the Good Shepherd, chapter 10 of John's gospel, verses 1 through 10. I always approach this with some trepidation because this text was the one I had to translate into English from the Greek text for my first semester of Greek final in seminary. And I have to tell you now... I can confess at this remove that I made a pig's breakfast of it. <laughs> Father Edwards goes, uh, 
I trust that you're going to be taking the second semester. <laughs> so I said, yes, Father, I, I, I am. I will, I will do it. Here's what the text gave up for me this, this week when I was reading and thinking about it. Uh, all of the Good Shepherd texts uh, in John's Gospel have something uh, to do with the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And more to the point, they have to do with uh, the absolute statement, no one gets to the Father except through me. I am the gate. So that sounds pretty exclusivist, doesn't it? In fact, there are a lot of Christians in this world today and not a, a few Episcopalians who believe that where we've failed is that we have not beat the drum enough of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and the necessity that you must accept him in order to be saved. And then I'm thinking to myself, you know, that's not really a particularly ancient understanding of how we see the way we operate in the world in plural circumstances. Even the ancient Near East was a far more plural place than uh, you and I might think. So I went to another one of my seminary textbooks, Principles of Christian Theology by Dr. John McQuarrie. He was the Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity at Oxford. And he says this about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. I would have to say that the word unique is not helpful in discussing the place of Jesus Christ. Not only Jesus Christ, but every person is unique. And therefore, so is Muhammad, and so is Gautama Buddha. In place of the words rejected, unique, final, absolute, I shall use the expression definitive for Jesus Christ as understood in Christian faith. He is definitive in the sense that for Christians, he defines in normative fashion both the nature of humanity, which he has brought to a new level, and the nature of God. For the divine Logos, expressive being, has found its fullest expression in him. This is an affirmation of faith made from within history and not an attempt to pronounce from some vantage point above history. As such, it is content to make an affirmation about Jesus Christ and to refrain from negative judgments concerning the truth in other faiths. It recognizes that while Christ possesses fullness and a definitive status, our apprehension of that fullness is always imperfect. So don't you believe it for a minute if somebody tells you they have a lock on the absolute way to understand the definitiveness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, for me, is the definitive focus of the divine presence. He is my greatest place of safety and assurance. 
And he is who I would commend to others as being the location for what I have just described. But that comes from faith and from my participation in the community life that is described in the book of Acts. Now at the end of today's gospel, Jesus says something that I think is the most important line in the whole of this text. In fact, it was the one line I got right. (laughs) I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development, the person in whom we have seen the highest potential of humanity achieved, and by extension we understand now that we can live into that reality. And that's what produces uh, the abundant life. So this week, give thanks for the great shepherd. Give thanks for the shepherd who knows each of us by name and unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. And I don't know about you, but that's pretty definitive. Amen.